Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have to uh, come together as your people. We have to study your word freely from the fear of persecution, from people marching in and taking us away. We ask that as we study your word that you would help us to understand it, that you would soften our hearts toward it, that you would uh, speak through me, that you would use me to speak to your people. Amen. You may have a seat. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, I remember walking through the aisles of Walmart with my mom. And after we had found what we were looking for, we made our way to the checkout lines. And while, while we waited for a short eternity to get to the cashier, I noticed a family come in, into the store from outside. And I don't know where they were from, but if I were to guess, they were from uh, east across the ocean. And what made me notice them was that sound that ski pants make when they rub together when you walk in them, that sound. And as I look over, there's two or three kids there, uh, all bundled up. They had their toucan mitts on, their winter jacket, ski pants, and winter boots. And the parent that was with them was also dressed warm, great big thick jacket, big scarf, also with the toucan mitts. And then I looked down at what I was wearing, shorts and a t-shirt. It was barely fall, maybe September, October. And I remember thinking to myself that this poor family, you know, like, if they think this is cold, they got another thing coming. <laughs> and I share this story with you so that uh, we can, I can call your attention to it later. It serves as a helpful, in- helpful introduction and as an illustration. And uh, today's passage, as we just read, is almost a continuation of last week's message, an extended application. You know, last week we looked at how, God's cho- how we are God's chosen people and how we have a purpose you know, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, as it says in verse 9. And as good as it is to proclaim this truth with our words... If our actions do not follow, then our words mean nothing. In verses 11 and 12, Peter will give us two commands, which are really the two sides of the same coin. Along with these commands, he gives us two reasons for them, and all of this is with the hope of achieving one goal. And as we walk through this passage, relying on the Holy Spirit's help, I think we'll be able to understand what this means for us today. Uh, So we begin with Peter's opening word, beloved. At a glance, it doesn't seem like much. Maybe it's just another one, Bible word. And I was tempted to skim past it and get to the real meat and potatoes of this passage. But the more I studied the more I realized the significance of this word, both in its meaning and in its purpose. So in its meaning. Let's think of the uh, big picture here. 
As, as we've learned in previous weeks, Peter has been calling his readers exiles. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, To the elect exiles of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And in verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter has also said that we are God's children. In verse 10, he makes reference as obedient children. And again in verse 17, if you call on him, that is God, as father. Peter continues to say that you have been ransomed from the futile ways you inherit, inherited from your fathers. In verse 18, saying that we are no longer who we used to be. And in my mind, the question is, well, then who are we? We are, we are exiles, but then we are children of God. How does that work? Last week, Peter explicitly gave us that answer. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved is, is used here to give us this sense of belonging. It is true that we are no longer who we used to be because we are God's beloved. We are his chosen people. And I can't help but think of a, a quarterback kind of calling in his offensive line. Beloved, yo, come here. We are, not, we are not called to be individuals in the faith, but to be a part of the family, the beloved of God. And beloved here also has a purpose, a reason it is being used. A lot of commentaries will take this word, beloved, and they'll point to it and say that this word here marks the beginning of a new section within the book of First Peter. But I don't think this is the case. I think it acts more like a bridge between verses 9 and 10 and, 12 to 12, and 11 to 12. And I think what Peter is saying here is that, you know, beloved, you know, as God's chosen people, this is now how you are to live. This is, what it is, this is what is expected of you. And I wondered why Peter didn't just use another Bible word like therefore, and I think it's because, therefore, doesn't have that same sense of belonging, that same sense of family. It's too formal. And Peter meant what he said in verse 9 when he told us that we were God's chosen people. We are his beloved. And this brings us to Peter's first command, abstain. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter starts his command with some fairly aggressive words, I urge you. He doesn't say, hey, if you have some time. He doesn't say, if you happen to think about it. He doesn't say, if it's okay with you. He says, I urge you. And in the Greek, it is even stronger. In English, we don't get that same sense. You know, we would hear it more in the tone of how it says. But in the Greek, we can add another word. You know, I strongly urge you. you know, Peter isn't messing around. He means business. 
He wants his readers to take seriously what he says next. I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. This phrase here is mightily important for our, for our understanding of this passage. You know, as sojourners and exiles. Let's think of the big picture again. What did Peter just call his readers in verse 9? God's chosen race. A holy nation that once they were not a people, but now you are God's people. So they are no longer exiles, except in verse 11, Peter calls them sojourners and exiles again. Why? Like, how does that work? Well, it works because Peter isn't referring to their physical location anymore. Rather, he is referring to their temporary status here on earth. You know, this world around us, this is not our true home. This is only temporary, with temporary problems and even temporary pleasures. Our true home is in heaven, with eternal pleasures, and better yet, absolutely zero pain, zero suffering, and zero issues. The terms sojourners and exiles are synonyms for each other, and to be one is to live in a place without the right of citizenship. Being God's chosen people is what makes us sojourners and exiles, because we, no longer, we are no longer living for the world and for our own pleasures, but for God and his kingdom. And as Peter continues, he says, As sojourners and exiles, abstain. Notice again the strong word choice. He doesn't say, if you can help it. He doesn't say, if you feel like it. He says, abstain. And not only that, but he says, as sojourners and exiles, abstain. This is one way in which God's people, God's chosen people, will be marked differently from the rest of society because we abstain from the passions of the flesh. And this is a major topic for Peter in these couple verses, and we'll, we'll revisit it as we go along. Uh, some other helpful ways that we can translate this Greek word abstain into English are to hold back to keep off or to prevent. And I think that these other translations help us to really get a, a nice full picture of this word abstain, and it points us to a, an implication. You know, abstaining from something gives a sense that it's not a one-and-done type deal. You know, it's an ongoing process. Peter doesn't say stop. You know, it's not that simple. It's not that easy. He says, abstain. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It is a, it's going to be continual, a struggle to abstain. But as you become more and more sanctified, as you become closer and closer to God, the sins that you used to take part in will become easier and easier to reject. And better yet, if you keep in the faith and stay consistent, and as you grow, you might even find yourself hating the sin you once loved. And this is all fine and well, you know. We know we are supposed to abstain from the passions of the flesh, but 
What are they? What are the passions of the flesh? Uh, Passions here is used much the same way as it was used in verse 14 of chapter 1. It comes from the Greek word uh, for lust and desire, and it's more than a simple wanting. It's the kind of the kind of desire that this Greek word means is a, a deep-seated craving to do or to have something. A craving so strong that it becomes the center of your world. It's all you ever think about. It's all you ever dream about. It's all you ever want. And lust is most commonly used in our world today to speak about sexual sins or desires. And though those are, and though those are certainly included in, in the word lust, a person can have lust for anything, for more or better power, prestige, possessions, or pleasure. When Peter talks about this, this word, uh, the flesh, you know, he's, he's talking about our bodies, our physical flesh. And, he, and his use of this word is, is very similar, if not the same, as when Paul uses the word flesh. Here, Paul, or here Peter uses the term to talk about the desires of our fallen bodies. Though as believers, you know, we have been born again, this is not talking about our physical bodies, as it's impossible to be born again physically. But he's talking about our soul. When a person comes to faith in Christ, they are born again spiritually, but their physical bodies stay in the, in the same state, in the same fallen state. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58, Paul talks about how our earthly bodies are not able to inherit the kingdom of God. They need to be changed, and that changing will only happen at the final resurrection. And in light of 1 Peter 1, verse 14, where Peter commands his readers to not conform to the passions of their former ignorance, in 2.11 here, he kind of turns up the heat, just like Jesus does with the Ten Commandments in the Sermon of the Mount. Peter says that not only are his readers not to partake in their former ways of life, but even the desire to partake is not appropriate for the Christian life. Now, there are two implications here that I would like to make mention of before, mo- before we move on. Number one, assuming that you have been born again spiritually and therefore have God's spirit, this does not make you exempt from having desires of your flesh that you need to abstain from. Remember, our physical bodies are still not redeemed and won't be redeemed until the final resurrection. So we are still going to have times where we crave or lust after something other than God in an unhelpful or unhealthy way. The second implication is that it heavily implies, if not makes explicit, that inward emotions and desires are controllable. You know, Peter expects his readers to have their fleshly desires under control. And this, as you can imagine, will ruffle a few feathers in our society, which says that our inner feelings are the truth, when in reality, our desires are nothing more than desires. Feelings and desires are not what determine truth. You know, I can believe that I'm a millionaire and that my minivan is actually a Lamborghini, 
But the facts don't care about my feelings. You know, I can look at my bank records and see I'm not a millionaire. I can look at my driveway and see that my minivan is still not a Lamborghini. You know, Peter says that we must take control of these sinful desires, as they should have no part in our Christian life. Along with the reason of being sojourners and exiles, this, this is how we are, are different than society, Peter gives us another clear reason for abstaining from the passions of the flesh. So the, so the reason here, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Again, notice the strong language that Peter uses, wage war. In Greek, it is all one word, and it gives the idea of a military expedition. You know, once you have become a believer, you are immediately thrusted into a battle you didn't know existed. Remember, assuming that you are a born-again believer, spiritually, your fleshly body is not. And those two sides are going to be waging war within you. It's your fleshly passions waging war against your soul. Both of them, both of them want the same thing, the allegiance of your heart and your life. But what is our soul? If we take even a, a quick look through the book of First Peter, it will help us or help shed some light on what our soul is. Uh, so in chapter one, verse nine, Peter talks about what we get out of having faith. It is the salvation of our soul. So it's not our physical body that gets saved, but it is our, our person, you know, who we are, that gets saved. The next passage. The next few passages that speak about our souls in First Peter have to do with a refining and purifying process uh, through obedience, through action. So in verse 22 of chapter 1, Peter says that we have purified our souls by our obedience to the truth. The next time soul is used is in our passage, uh, verse 11, chapter 2. And as we just looked at, the way in which we, we used to live, our, our fleshly body is at enmity with our spiritual body and that we must abstain from such fleshly passions. The last time soul is used is in First in Peter, is at the end of chapter 2, where Peter shares that our souls are straying like sheep, but God has brought us back to himself, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And this is Peter's reason for commanding us to abstain from, from fleshly passions, you know, which wage war on your soul. Notice Peter says, which, not if, not even when. He says, which. You know, this internal struggle is present tense, and I'm sure it's happening even now, like right now as you sit and listen. Some of you, I'm sure, are struggling to pay attention thinking about what all has to get done today or this coming week, what you're going to have for lunch or what sports teams you're playing this afternoon. Others have, I'm sure, checked out long ago. Your flesh doesn't want you to pay attention because that would mean you might want to change, change it. And that would mean that your soul would have a small victory in this internal battle. And Peter warns us further, further that we cannot afford to be passive. We cannot go through life coasting on the coattails of last week's sermon, 
The passions of your flesh are always at work, seeking to overwhelm and undermine your soul's devotion to the Lord. They are deceitful desires that long to distract you, to pull you back into your old lifestyle. And this is no small matter of simply trying to suppress or resist these fleshly desires, but it is a full-on war. Christians will all too often coast through life, assuming that they will survive spiritually in this world if they merely attend church on Sundays and small group on a different evening. But even a dead fish swims downstream, which is to say that even if you do call yourself a Christian and you are different from all the other fish in the stream, if you do not actively participate in your faith, if you are not proactive in your faith, you too will be carried away with the rest of society. And this language of being proactive brings us to Peter's second command in verse 12. And at a glance, it seems disconnected, but really, along with the previous command to abstain, there are two sides of the same coin. You know, as you do one, the other will inevitably follow. Before we go further, I would also like to point out that Peter's prior declaration of, you know, I urge you as sojourners and exiles still applies to this command. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So what Peter has said in the negative in verse 11, you know, abstain, don't do your fleshly passions. He almost repeats it, but this time in the positive. You know, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Conduct here is to say how you live your life is to be kept honorable the way you live. Now when we hear honorable, at least in my mind, I think of, uh, of upright or morally good. And though that is certainly the case here, Honorable means more than that. The Greek word here also gives us the sense of an aesthetic worth or a beauty. You know, it is attractive to the eye of the beholder. And attractive not necessarily in the sense of, I want that, but more so in the sense of, oh, look at that. You know, to me, it's just like Christmas lights. It's really hard to drive around Nipwin in the dark and not see all the Christmas lights that people have on their houses. Uh, I like to look at them, but I, I wouldn't want Christmas lights on my own house. Peter mentions, that the, or Peter mentions here also the Gentiles. And this is very interesting, because who are these Gentiles? If you can remember as we've gone through First Peter, there have been a number of textual clues that point us to think that Peter was writing to the Gentiles, not the Jews. Uh, take uh, chapter 1, verse 18, for example. You know, Peter says in relation to his readers, you, know, you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherit, inherited from your forefathers. This is not something that Peter would have said to, to Jews. And yet here, in chapter 2, verse 12, he, refer he references the non-believers as Gentiles. And we know that these are Gentiles, the non-believers, because of what they say. And we'll get there in a minute. 
But I want to point out the significance of how Peter is treating these Gentile readers, his readers. You know, he no longer sees his readers as the unbelieving pagans that they once were, but as fully accepted and included chosen, chosen people of God. And this should be of no surprise to us that this is what Peter is calling them, right? In verses 9 and 10, he said they are God's chosen people. And not to mention that in verse 11, he called them God's beloved. It's just fascinating, fascinating to me that Peter practices what he preaches and includes these Gentiles in the family of God. And what does this mean for us today? You know, we are exiles in this world. What does it mean for us to keep our lives as honorable? Oh, whether they intended to or not, uh, that family at Walmart that I was talking to you about earlier uh, stood out. You know, just like a hunter in the field wearing blaze orange, you know, you know, you would you would have you would have noticed them that they were different. It's not a bad thing that you noticed them or that they stood out. They were not like anybody else in the store. Everybody else was wearing a t-shirt, maybe a sweater, pants, maybe shorts. But this family was wearing all-out winter gear. And I think that's the point that Peter's trying to make. You know, the way that we want to stand out as believers should be as obvious as being landed immigrants in Canada. You know, we are sojourners. We are exiles in this world. This is not our forever home. And so how does this look? How can we actually do that? Uh, I, th- I think there's a few ways. Um, in my graduating year, all my friends were going to be going to what was called a safe grad. And essentially, safe grad, for those of you who don't know, is an event put on by the parents of graduates. Graduates. Uh, grads would get onto this bus and they would go to someone's acreage or farm where they would be able to drink safely, also illegally, uh, but safely meaning that there wasn't a chance for them to drive home afterward. They would either stay the night at that person's farm or they would be taken home by uh, a parent. And the thought behind it is that, you know, these teenagers are going to drink anyways, so we may as well give them, uh, make, sure they're, make sure that they're safe while they do it. And all my friends were going, and they wanted me to go with them. But me, knowing why they were going there and what was going to happen, I couldn't be less interested to go. You know, they were disappointed that I wasn't going to go, but I didn't care. That would not have been keeping my life honorable among the Gentiles. Maybe you too are invited to various parties, whether it be through school or maybe a work party. And if you know that there's going to be heavy drinking... Just stay home. I mean, what's the benefit? What's the point in going? The next time I saw those friends, they told me what fun that they had had. They got super drunk, passed out, and couldn't remember what they did. And I'm not even exaggerating, that's what they told me. Like, how is that at all fun? What's the benefit of going? Another way that we can stand out is, is the clothes that we wear. You know, the world dresses in some truly mind-boggling ways all in the name of fashion. 
To see teenage girls walking around outside in nothing less but leggings and a sweater, shivering and coughing because it's minus 25 and plus the wind chill. That just makes no sense to me. And this is not to say that we can't have nicer, fancy clothes, uh, but just be careful about where, where, you, where your clothes are pointing the attention to. You know, if it's not to your face, maybe uh, take a second, second chance at the wardrobe. Some other ways that we are able to keep our conduct honorable is by watching how we interact with others. You know, do we talk like them or swear like them? Do we joke crudely or cruelly with them? Do we gossip with them? Or to put it in the positive, do we work hard at our jobs, always doing the best that we can? Are we respectful to our boss, even when they don't do what we think is best, or even if they're being unfair? And of course, these are not the only ways that we can stand out in the crowd, but they're a good starting place. And before moving on to Peter's reason for this command, I want to make a brief mention of this word, among. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter is not saying that once we are saved, now we are to go out and live with other fellow believers, separated from society, as if we were leprous, like in the Old Testament. No, like we are, we are to remain living among the unsaved. Though we are not of this world, because we are sojourners and exiles, we are still living in this world, as Jesus says in John 17. And all of this helps bring us to Peter's reason for this command. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice the word when that Peter uses. He doesn't say if here, if they speak against you. He says when. It is going to happen. People are going to treat you differently because you are different. You are exiles in this world. You don't think like the world does. You don't reason like them. When the world pushes for the legalization of abortion and when Christians stand up to fight it, how does the world respond? Not kindly. They will accuse Christians of not being for women and their right to choose, you know, their body, their choice. They accuse Christians of of not being caring about the mother who, you know, have a a reason for getting an uh, an abortion. You know, we know that these accusations are false because we believe that each baby in the womb is a fearfully and wonderfully made creation from God's own hand. And to allow people to discard that baby should be sickening to us. Or when Christians stand up for what is right and go against this idea that people can't just change their genders with surgery and hormones, well, how does the world react? They'll call us transphobic. They deem us as unloving because we don't want people to destroy that fearfully and wonderfully made body for no reason. We want to help them see that, no, they are not the wrong gender. They've been duped. They've been tricked. People see and understand that Christians are different, and it scares them. There are 
pulling Christian teachings out of school curriculum if they haven't removed all, all of it already. Even Christian values are slowly being removed from society, like marriage and how it's not just one man getting to marry to one woman now. But we are exiles in this world, and the world is already treating us as such. As we move on to Peter's next phrase, <clears throat> I believe that there is a, a reason for him to order these phrases in the way that he did. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you, they will see your good deeds. I think what Peter is getting at is how are you, as a believer, as an exile, going to react when they speak against you? Are you going to fight back? Are you going to get even? Are you going to be defensive in an aggressive way? And I would hope that the answer is no. You know, that would not be keeping our conduct as honorable. We need to keep our conduct honorable in all situations, not just when things are going our way, not just when things are easy, but especially when things don't go our way. And with this idea of keeping our conduct honorable, Peter is echoing what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter, like Jesus, has a goal in mind with all of this. And as we wrap up here today, let's remember the goal of living lives as exiles. You know, all of this passage is so that the Gentile, Gentiles, the non-believers, may see the good deeds that we do and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I want to, to stop you there before you, you hear the words, day of visitation, and then jump immediately to the last day when Jesus returns. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but there is enough ambiguity in the Greek that warrants a closer look. You know, in the Greek text, there is no definite article. There is no the. And so it can be translated uh, just the same, just as faithfully to the text as on a day of visitation. And this is important because Peter's mind could have been going to the final day, but it is also just as likely that his mind could have been going to when Jesus first came in Luke 19, verse 44. And there is also another possibility that this visitation day refers to uh, the conversion of a non-believer when it is said that the Holy Spirit would visit a person in order to give them saving faith. And in the Greek Old Testament, this word visitation refers, refers to God's intervention either with grace to, for his people or as wrath for the unrepentant. <clears throat> In the book of First Peter mentions, or in the book of First Peter, he mentions the last day seven times, chapter one, verses five, seven, and thirteen, chapter four, verse seven and thirteen and seventeen, and then again in chapter five, verse one. And commentaries will suggest that because of these references, because of all of the references to the last day, Peter is actually talking about Christ's second coming when he writes on the day of visitation.
And whether you hold the opinion that God is going to visit with grace for the unbeliever or wrath for the unrepentant, or that he is going to visit the newly converted believer, bottom line is that Peter hopes that those who have observed your good deeds will come to faith and that they will then glorify God. You know, as an exile, as we strive to abstain from the passions of our flesh, and as we strive to keep our way of life honorable among the Gentiles, you will be acting as a witness against those who have maligned you or who, or who have spoken evil against you. And this, in turn, will also glorify God, which is what the Christian faith is all about, you know, bringing glory to God. And how does this work? Well, Peter is going to talk more about this next in the upcoming verses. But for now, I'll give a brief statement. The next few passages have to do with submission to authority and a wife's submission to her husband and how Christians are to interact within these uh, relationships. The same could be said to your relationship with your boss or your uh, superiors. Now, in those passages that we will look at at future dates, you know, Peter doesn't, doesn't call on Christians to withdraw or to act in rebellion under such submission. But he has put it in this passage that we are to live among the non-believers and to keep our conduct honorable among them. You know, in Jewish thought, whether God was viewed as being honorable or dishonorable, you know, it was determined by the deeds of the followers. You know, if they treated their bosses with contempt, then they would think, okay, well, God must not be true. He must not be honorable. But if they saw that their the Christians would treat their bosses or their spouses uh, honorably, then they would say, okay, God is, uh, should be honored. And, the, and this is what commentaries believe this to be Peter's line of thinking. You know, how we, how we treat others, how we live our lives, how we conduct our lives is a reflection of who God is. And when the non-believers speak against us, they will see our honorable lifestyle and our good deeds, and it will cause them to glorify God. And so as you leave here today, remember that you are exiles in this world, that you must control your fleshly desires as well as to live honorably among all. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, for your word and what it means for us today. Thank you that you have called us out of our former way of life, that you have called us to yourself, that you have chosen us. We thank you that we can be your children. We ask that you would help us to put this passage into practice, that you would help us to abstain from our earthly desires, that you would help us to keep the way that we live honorable among those around us. Would we be good representatives of who you are and what you stand for? Would you, would we, would you help us remember that this world that we live in is temporary along with the, the problems that we have in it? 
Would you keep our mind on, on you and, and our, our earthly forever home? Amen.